an Irish airman foresees his death. I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Those that I fight I do not hate, those that I guard I do not love. My country is to Tartan cross, my countrymen to Tartan's poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public men nor cheering crowds. A lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The years to come seemed waste of breath, a waste of breath the years behind, in balance with this life, this death. Hello, I'm Alicia Brogy. And I'm Erica Lombard. We are literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read W.B. Yeats's The Wild Swans at Cool. We also talk to two experts on Yeats, Bernard O'Donoghue and Lauren Arrington. Bernard is an acclaimed Irish poet and academic, and he was generous enough to read one of the poems from the collection, An Irish Airman Foresees His Death, for us. And that's what you heard at the beginning of the episode. So I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to W.B. Yeats and the Wild Swans at Cool. And I'll tell you a bit about the book. Then we'll hear from experts and have a conversation about it. Erica, please, tell us about Yeats. William Butler Yeats was born on the 13th of June, 1865, in Dublin, Ireland, which was then part of the United Kingdom. He was the eldest child of barrister-turned-artist John Butler Yeats and Susan Mary Pollocksfin. He grew up in an Anglo-Irish Protestant family in London and Dublin, holidaying in Sligo, which he considered home. And this background shaped his complex relationship with the majority Catholic Ireland and Irish nationalism. In his 20s in London, he met writers like Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw, as well as one of the most important figures in his life, Maud Gonn. <laughs> Maud Gonn was an Irish nationalist and would become amused to Yeats, who proposed marriage to her and was turned down multiple times over the next three decades. In 1889, he published his first volume of poetry, the Wanderings of Oisin and other poems, which focused on Irish mythology. Yeats, like many others in the 1800s, was interested in the occult and the supernatural. He joined the Golden Dawn Secret Society and remained active in it for 32 years, weaving many occult symbols into his poetry and publishing an entire study on the topic, A Vision, in 1925. He wrote plays with his friend and patron, Lady Augusta Gregory, who was another Irish nationalist, with whom he helped found the Irish National Theatre Society and the Abbey Theatre. Lady Gregory's estate was Cool Park. 
where Yeats visited and whose swans he immortalized in the title poem of the wild swans at Coole. In 1917, after a final failed proposal to Maud Gon, and then one to her daughter, Sult, <laughs> at 52 years old, Yeats married 25-year-old Georgie Hyde Lees, with whom he would experiment with automatic writing and have a daughter and son. So the first thing to note about The Wild Swans at Cool is that Yeats actually published two different versions of the collection. The first 1917 edition was published by Cooler Press in Ireland, which was operated by Yeats's sister. It was shorter, only 17 lyrical poems and a play, and had a small print run of about 400 copies. The 1919 edition was published by Macmillan in London, and it comprised 33 poems and lost the play. It had a larger print run and added a few of the most celebrated poems in the collection, such as An Irish Airman for Caesar's Death and a few more love poems. Meanwhile, the political situation in Ireland was growing ever more turbulent. The country was wracked by civil war as the Irish Republican movement grew ever stronger and more militant. The Republican Easter Rising of 1916 was violently quashed, but fueled nationalist sentiment among the population further protests, and guerrilla warfare. This led to the establishment of the Irish Free State in 1922, a dominion of the British Commonwealth, so not quite fully independent. Yeats served as senator for six years from 1922, and he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1923. He died at the age of 73 in January 1939, just over a year after Ireland became a republic in December 1937. And I bet you are all wondering, what did Yeats think of cats? <laughs> Tell me now. Well, I have found a rather delightful photograph of Yeats in bed with a luxuriating old white cat. And he clearly identified with cats. In fact, just this collection has two poems about cats. One is called Two Songs of a Fool, and the other is called The Cat and the Moon. In the latter, he imaginatively identifies with a cat called Minelouche, who is allegedly Maud Gons or Assault's cat. And he writes, Minelouche creeps through the grass, alone, important, and wise, and lifts to the changing moon his changing eyes. <laughs> okay, Alicia, what are the poems in The Wild Swans at Cool about? Well, for some context, the New York Public Library included the 1917 edition of The Wild Swans at Cool in their list of the books of the century. That edition, however, as Erica told us, was later republished in an expanded form in 1919, and it's that expanded form which is more widely circulated and read today. So in this episode, we're looking at both. And that's important context for my bit on discussing the poems themselves. Across the two editions, there are some main themes that remain prominent, aging and love, with the attendant themes of transience, memory, loss, beauty. The poems in both editions also display a symbolist focus on natural objects and creatures, such that hawks, hares, and swans represent something else in virtue of what they actually are. So there are strong thematic connections in continuities between the 1917 and 1919 versions of this collection. But one particularly notable change has to do with politics. In the 1917 edition, the most directly political poem is 
entitled On Being Asked for a War Poem, with its famous words, I think it better that in times like these, a poet's mouth be silent. For in truth, we have no gift to set a statesman right. Although that poem is also in the 1919 edition, there are others now included, or then included, in which Yeats, the poet, does not remain silent in times that are, as Erica noted, changing. Those poems speak about the Great War, World War I, albeit in a fairly personal way. In particular, they are elegies for Robert Gregory, Lady Gregory's son, which she conscripts after his death, and they include An Irish Airman Foresees His Death, the poem we heard at the start of this episode. We'll hear more about the differences between the 1917 and 1919 edition of The Wild Ones at Cool, but one last difference that I'd like to point out at the start is that the latter no longer includes the play from the original collection, which is called At the Hawk's Well. That play reflected just how wide-ranging the artistic influences on Yeats were. Ezra Pound had introduced Yeats to the Japanese no-theatrical tradition with their use of masks and gestures to replace and stylize displays of emotion, and this influenced At the Hawk's Well, but also expanded Yeats's symbolist repertoire in his poetry. As he puts it in a note on the play, Expression in poetical and tragic art, as every producer knows, is mainly in those movements that are of the entire body. In his poetry, traditional rhyme schemes and familiar imagery propel readers into waters often inflected with mystery, in movements that are likewise of the entire body of each poem, and perhaps the entire collection. Before we talk about our experience with the collection, we'll hear from Bernard O'Donohue. He is an acclaimed poet and academic, originally from County Cork, Ireland. He's an emeritus fellow at Wadham College, Oxford University, where he taught medieval literature and modern Irish poetry. We asked him to reflect on the significance of the Wild Swans at Cool in Yeats's life and work. The Yeats volume that immediately preceded the Wild Swans at Cool responsibilities has September 1913, Romantic Ireland's Dead and Gone, as well as The Cold Heaven, which has recently become maybe Yeats's most popular performance poem. But The Wild Swans Are Cool is the first volume after a major series of events in Yeats's life. The 1916 Rising, the death of John McBride, Maud Gone's estranged husband, who was executed after the Rising. Yeats's marriage and his wife's automatic writing, the purchase of Thur Balili, his symbolic tower. The volume was published by Macmillan in 1919, though first by Cooler Press, the press run by Yeats's sisters in 1917. The next volume after The Wild Swans Are Cool is Michael Robati's and the Dancer, 1921, the volume which contains some of Yeats's most celebrated political poems including two of his best-known public poems, Easter 1916 and The Second Coming. But Easter 1916, 16 Dead Men and the Rose Tree, the three most explicit and opinionated 1916 poems, were all written and so available when the contents of The Wild Swans of Cool were finalised. So their holding back to the later volume changed the balance of themes and concerns in The Wild Swans of Cool volume. 
The Yates scholar and editor, Daniel Albright, says that The Wild Swans Are Cool is perhaps the most heterogeneous volume of Yeats's career. His two publications were in significantly different forms. The Cooler edition in 1917 has 17 fewer poems than the Macmillan edition in 1919, which is the date to which the volume is normally now assigned. Amongst the 17 additional poems in the 1919 edition, the most significant change is the addition of the poems in memory of Robert Gregory, the son of Yeats's great friend and patron, Lady Augusta Gregory, who was killed in action in Italy in 1918. It's the subject of an Irish German for Cease's death. But even without these important personal poems, The Wild Swans at Cool is a significant advance. Its opening title poem, the stanzas of which were originally in a slightly different order, so it didn't end with the familiar, wonderful, dying fall to find they have flown away. It's one of the most loved of all Yeats's poems, and one of the great poems in the language on the subject of ageing. In the 1919 form of the volume, that opening poem is followed by two of the three poems about Robert Gregory. The third is the Virgilian eclogue, Shepherd and Goatherd, midway through the volume. So holding back the 1916 poems for the more consistently Irish political following, following volume, Michael Rabatis and the Dancer, gives weight to personal poems in the Wild Sons at Cool. The title poem, The Family Elegy in Memory of Alfred Pollexfen, and In Memory of Major Robert Gregory, and the love poems to several women, principally to Maud Gone, but also several to her daughter Ishult who Yeats proposed to after he was refused by her mother. Poems like Men Improve with the Years, which argues that the wisdom of old age may compensate for its loss of passion. The Living Beauty and To a Young Beauty, they're all issued gone poems. Memory pays tribute to the lovely face of Olivia Shakespeare, Yeats's first lover, though she is displaced in the poem by The Mountain Hare issued. Maud Gaunt, the principal presence, is the addressee here of Yeats's greatest love poem, Broken Dreams, There is Grey in Your Hair, and so on. And the subject of her praise, a poem in which Yeats unusually praises her social activism among the poor. As well as the personal poems, a new category is the occult poems produced by Yeats's wife's automatic writing, a controversial category, but one that builds towards a new private philosophy for Yeats. And as well as her praise, there's an important exception to the absence of public poems on being asked for a war poem, written in February 1915 in response to a request from Edith Wharton for a poem for her anthology of World War I writings. Yeats says he thinks it's better that in times like these the poets might be silent and attend to more personal dalliance. It's a significant silence because the following year he will write a decidedly political poem, Easter 1916, even though it wasn't published until 1919. In other words, um, a poet can open his mouth about Irish politics. So what does the heterogeneity of this volume amount to? It's a volume of transition after the momentous developments in Yeats's private life before the eruption of the wasteland and the structural impact of modernism on the great political sequences of the tower. But in the title poem, 
and in poems like Broken Dreams and In Memory of Major Robert Gregory, there's a generosity of spirit that shows Yeats at his most sympathetic and responsible. There are other volumes of Yeats which must have been considered as candidates for the New York Public Library's list of books of the century, notably The Tower and Last Poems. But The Wild Swans of Cool has a unique appeal. Alicia, this is our first book of poems that we're reading together. It's pretty exciting. We've only looked at prose so far, so I'm quite keen to get into this with you. So what did you think of The Wild Swans at Cool? I enjoyed reading the collection. I generally enjoy reading Yeats, but I've often approached his works through a full collection of the works, a compendium that, that puts the collection side by side, and then it's very tempting to pick and choose. And... It was enjoyable to see how the collection itself is crafted as a whole. Yeah, apparently Yeats took a, a, a really kind of direct hand in the order of the poems and how they were laid out on the page and that sort of thing. Like by this point in his career, he had the clout to do that. Hmm. And he was kind of, I sort of think of him as like making a mixtape or like a de <laughs> DJing a set or something so that it matters what poem is next to another one. You know what I mean? It matters what order they're in and which poems follow each other. One of the things that I read emphasized that in the 1917 edition, the title was The Wild Swans at Cool, Other Poems, and a Play in Verse. Whereas in the 1919 edition, it's just The Wild Swans at Cool, which to my mind shifts the focus really on to that eponymous poem where its title becomes the title for all of the works within this collection. And I'd love to yeah. delve into that and get your take on the poem, The Wild Swans at Cool. Yeah, I think it's really worth looking at, actually. I think it's one of the standout poems of the collection. It's really beautiful because I think the, the form and the content are in unison. And Yeats is always a master of form mm. and a master of rhythm, kind of specifically, I think. So there's this play between stillness and movement that's happening. Okay, so the, the poem itself is set at Cool Park, which was Lady Gregory's park where Yeats visited. And he is standing by some water, counting the swans. And he says he's done this for 19 years. This is the 19th autumn that he's counted these swans. And he's reflecting on time's passage and thinking of how he's growing older and how the world is changing. But he sees something in the swans that seems eternal and beautiful and ever young. And he says his heart is sore as a result of that. So there's this idea of, of movement, the movement of time. It begins with the trees and their autumn beauty. There's a sense of winter coming. Hmm. And I mean, just that first stanza has these great kinds of moments where I think one of the lines that when I looked at it again, I was just thinking, oh, this is great what he's doing here with rhythm. Mm. So the trees are in their autumn beauty, the woodland paths are dry, and then you get this undulating line that feels like water lapping against a bank. Under the October twilight, the water 
and then it goes still again. Mirrors is still sky. So, you know, just in, in those lines, I think there's a lot of rich stuff happening. He's evoking a kind of a mood. Absolutely. And even the alliterative teas, the trees are in their autumn beauty. And then down again. Yes. Under the October twilight, the water, it feels so crisp, like fall air. And yeah, with the, with the recurring theme of the swans coming back, you have that sense of an eternal and absolute and constant cycle that's going on, that's, that's returning, mm. the eternal return amidst his change, his growth across this poem. Yeah. His aging. Yeah, there's a this personal aspect to it that you really brought out when you were um, describing the collection earlier. A lot of the poems in this collection are about him getting older and his kind of wrestling with his body growing older and the loss of youth and the loss of certain kinds of vitality. In another poem, he says, who could have foretold that the heart grows old? You know, there's an idea of him getting older and him kind of really wrestling with that. Hmm. You know, so there's that personal aspect, but I, I think there's also the sense of, of change in the, the wider world and like turbulence, not to belabor the kind of movement versus stillness theme too much. But I, I felt when I read certain lines, he says, he says, I've looked upon those brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. And I mean, just see those monosyllabic words that really pound, right? Now my heart is sore. And then he says, all's changed since I hearing at twilight the first time on the shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head trod with a lighter tread. So, you know, he had a lighter tread earlier. He's, he's feeling heavier now. But that phrase, all's changed, really stuck out to me because it reminds me of Easter 1916, that's the poem that he wrote after the Easter Rising of 1916 that says, all changed, changed utterly. You know, it's, it's almost like he's shouting out to his own poem. But that poem hasn't been published yet because he holds back the publication of the poem for like four years or something. It's only in Michael Robati's and the Dancer, the next collection, that that poem gets published. So... So I think of this, I don't know when the two were written, but I think of this as kind of potentially being written in the same sort of mode. Mm. And at the same time, there's World War I, the Great War at this time. That was also flagged to me by his saying about the, the swans. He says, their hearts have not grown old, which echoes the poem For the Fallen by Lawrence Binion, and it's what people read every year on Remembrance Day. It says, they shall not grow old, that poem. Um, and actually, Lawrence Binion, I looked it up, was a friend of Yeats. And that poem was written in 1914. So there's, hmm. there's definitely kind of an echo of the Great War. And I'm not trying to say that the swans are like the dead of, of World War I, but I think there is a kind of a conscious echo going in there that that you get the sense of the, the external world and history kind of intruding and the world changing and being something quite troubling. For me, when I read those lines with the heart, the heart growing sore and growing old, it reminded me of the Easter 1916 poem where he says, too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart, mm. which seems to be the stage almost beyond it growing old, beyond it being sore. It's gotten 
it's it's rigid now or uh, ossified in some way. Yeah, but also I, I think that distinction you hinted toward between the swans not being quite the soldiers, the war, being something beyond that. I think that's that stood out to me as well because when he describes them all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. This sense of eternal return of the rings, of the cyclical nature, the, the swans seem to me to be this natural symbol of something that's actually beyond all this change that's happening. Mm. The change occurs as part of the cycle of eternal return that's greater that in the natural world or in something that exceeds individual lives, but also even the political situation of the time. Even the structure of the poem itself, we begin with him at the water looking out and then we return to the end. By what lake's edge or pool delight men's eyes when I awake someday to find they have flown away. And even the structure of the poem seems to have this return, the cyclical nature. So what you're talking about here, the way the form matches the content and is kind of playing with, you know, evoking moods and communicating something in a, you know without saying it it's like it's the feeling comes through i think really comes through in another poem that i studied at school and you probably have studied it as well it's a great poem that can teach you how to read poetry actually i think um and that's an irish airman foresees his death which bernard read for us earlier hmm. and that's ostensibly about major robert gregory who was a, a pilot in the first world war and it's this airman kind of weighing everything up and deciding to fight for probably no particularly good reason, no nationalistic or no patriotic reason at least. But the form of this poem is so delicately balanced and that really resonates. So there's a lot of parallelism. That's when there's kind of a repetition of the same sort of form of a sentence or of a phrase. Something like, those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. There's also a lot of chiasmus, which is kind of when lines cross over each other. So something like, the years to come seemed waste of breath, a waste of breath, the years behind. So in my mind, I'm seeing this airplane balanced, teetering and writing itself. He's got this kind of balance on both sides. The mood of the airman is remarkably calm and balanced itself, which is curious because is this a real person? <laughs> yeah, it's reminiscent of the work that the poet does in creating a kind of aesthetic balance when describing things or tapping into aspects of life that, that might actually be profoundly unbalanced. And it kind of works against what the airman, the speaker of the poem says that sense of, of balance, because actually a lot of the content that he communicates is almost maddening or frustrating to the reader. Why is this guy fighting? He knows he's going to die. And he's decided that he, he says, those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. Mm. My country is Kiltartan cross. My countrymen Kiltartan's poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. Like I'm not fighting for my own people. Mm -hmm. And then it, he talks about some lonely impulse of delight that drove him to the tumult in the clouds. And then he said that there was nothing ahead of him and there was nothing behind him, or at least nothing important ahead or behind. And so he takes off balancing life and death. But the kind of stillness of the structure, I find it quite sort of, I don't know, 
energizing, but in a frustrated sort of a way. Like, what's going mm-hmm. on here? That also struck me. Yeah. I wondered, is this the kind of emotional state that motivates an airman, that motivated Robert Gregory? Yeah. And then when I read this poem in the context of the collection, alongside, for instance, The Fisherman, Mm -hmm. there was a couplet there, or there were a pair of lines there that stood out to me in an illuminating way because of the structural similarity with an Irish airman foresees his death. And those lines are the living men that I hate, the dead man that I loved. And these are lines that are being placed into the context of a poet describing his own disappointment with the reality of what he has accomplished as opposed to the ideal he had sought for. He had hoped to write for a certain kind of audience. And then he found himself instead writing with hatred for the, those who are actually alive and love for those who are actually dead instead of this ideal mm. of what a poet should be doing and how they should be postured in relation to the world. And by contrast, so those lines again, the living men that I hate, the dead man that I loved, and what kind of posture is that for a poet? By contrast, the Irish airman who foresees his death, he speaks of those he fights, which you would expect him to hate, being those he does not hate, and those he guards being those he does not love, which might sound negative, but also sounds like he's not tribal. He's not motivated by tribal, self-interested motivations. There's something more pure motivating him, which is almost what you would expect to be motivating a poet, or at least Yeats's view of a poet. I see where you're going here. So the Irish airman is Yeats? <laughs> I wonder how much of it might be colored by Yeats, or at least... It, it is shaped by a Yeatsian ideal. Yeah. What's that ideal, do you think? Well, interestingly, you should ask, because the closest thing I found to a confession of poetic faith by Yeats is in an introduction he wrote to Rabindranath Tagore's Gitanjali when it was first published in the English language. And that was in, this introduction was published in 1912. So this is before the works that we're talking about, but just, just in the years leading up to it. And there, the things that he lauds in Tagore's writing seem to me to reflect Yeats's own view of what poetry should do, what a poet should be. So for instance, he describes, a, he's speaking about Tagore and he's speaking about his contributions to, quote, a tradition where poetry and religion are the same thing, which has passed through the centuries, gathering from learned and unlearned metaphor and emotion and carried back again to the multitude, the thought of the scholar and of the noble, end quote. So it's something in service to people, to people learned and unlearned, but that brings some kind of knowledge that's valuable, that's not just intellectual, but emotional, that's drawn from humanity's lived experience, that's drawn from the world in an almost religious sense. And that's the kind of posture that you would expect someone to have, who perhaps fights for an ideal, but not out of hatred, and who guards, but not out of preferential love. That's interesting. It also reminds me of what he says in The Fisherman, actually. And that poem also really stood out to me. Mm. Because in it, he's thinking about, like, what is the point of my poetry? Who am I writing for? Mm. And is my poetry doing the thing that I want it to do? Doing that thing that you just described. He thinks about this freckled man who goes to a gray place on a hill in gray Connemara clothes at dawn to cast his flies. He's thinking about this, a a simple kind of person who is on a hill fishing. And he's saying that he's writing about that person. 
And then he says, all day I'd looked in the face what I'd hoped twould be to write for my own race and the reality. The living men that I hate, the dead man that I loved, the craven man in his seat, the insolent, unreproved, and no knave brought to book who has won a drunken cheer. The witty man and his joke aimed at the commonest ear, the clever man who cries, the catch cries of the clown, the beating down of the wise and great art beaten down. A real sense of, of his poetry not achieving what he wanted it to. He even goes on to say, suddenly I began in scorn of this audience, imagining a man and his sun freckled face. He's so dis- it seems as though he's so disappointed with the reality of who people really are mm. that he takes solace in this rural, idealized man, this figment of his imagination, a man who does not exist, a man who is but a dream. And it's, maybe that also has political valences, a loyalty to Ireland, but also a caution or nervousness about an idealized version of who, mm. are, who are Irish people. What, what is... What is this thing we're fighting for? Yeah, and at the same time, though, he says, again, there's this kind of formal thing where he's using repetition in really Mm. particular ways. So he describes the freckled man who goes up on a hill in his clothes, and then then he comes back and he describes the man with his sun-freckled face and his clothes climbing. So, you know, he's referring back. And then he says, he cried, Before I am old, I shall have written him one poem maybe as cold and passionate as the dawn. So he he determines then to write for this imagined simple man. So there's there's a few things going on there. I think there is that caution that you flag, this imagined man, a man who does not exist. But there's also a desire to kind of simplify things down, to write Mm. for that kind of person. So that a, a simple Connemara fisherman could read one of his poems and find value in it. I like this kind of, just an aside, um, the poem maybe is cold and passionate as the dawn. There's a mm-hmm. kind of a, the, the cold thing there, it reminds me of the cold companionable streams in the wild swans at cool. And there is the sense of cooling happening, which is probably about getting older, right? The passions cooling. And he, he thinks a lot about cooling and cold things and stones. And ideas of passions moving away. And this really is a reflective poem where he's looking back and saying, all of this kind of passion to to be this particular kind of poet and have this kind of response from people hasn't worked. What now? But he's not just giving up on the passions. He's not He's not just cooling. He's holding those things in tension and in balance. He's holding the tension together, aesthetically balanced, cold and passion. Yeah, exactly. But aging is one of the predominant themes in this collection, as you say. And it's a theme that's expressed directly through the content, but also through the form. And this reconciling that maybe age affords, where the passions persist, but they aren't the only thing. They're put, maybe they're put into a little more balanced perspective. Yeah, I like that. And that aesthetic holding together, balancing of differences in this collection really stood out to me in unexpected ways at times. For instance, when I read through the first time, the poem Tom O'Ruffley in the 1919 edition didn't stand stand out to me particularly, but upon reflection and viewing it within the larger context of the collection, I became increasingly interested in it. 
It begins, though logic choppers rule the town and every man and maid and boy has marked a distant object down. An aimless joy is a pure joy, which so sounds almost facile or frivolous, aimless joy mm. within all these themes we've been talking about. And it's got this like da-dun, 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 da-dun rhythm going on. So it's almost like a children's yeah. <laughs> nursery rhyme. Yeah, that's right. And, and it goes on, and wisdom is a butterfly and not a gloomy bird of prey, which sounds so naive yeah. and light like a butterfly. Yes. If little planned is little sinned, but little need the grave distress, what's dying but a second wind? And there I think we start, well, even the language sounds a little heavier, what's dying but a second wind? It's not this mm. light flight of the butterfly anymore. Yes. And within the context of a collection that's reflecting on that's mourning the loss of life, of beauty, of loves, and reflecting on the aging process. This idea of death being a second wind seems to be a very different perspective and a different mood than the other poems create and generate. It also suggests his uh, occult beliefs because he did believe in reincarnation, right? Just a little aside. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And that's a perfect <laughs> aside to lead us into the next line which may well describe some of his wide-ranging interests, <laughs> parenthetically. <laughs> um, How but in zigzag wantonness could Trumpeter Michael be so brave? And he's alluding here to the archangel Michael, who is the one blowing the trumpet of God or is associated with the blowing of the trumpet of God when, and this is from first, I'm now quoting First Thessalonians 4, the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. But it's that second rising. It's the uh, second death leading to life again, the eternal return to right. life, I guess. And that's why if my dearest friend were dead, I'd dance a measure on his grave, which seems like a bit of a sacrilegious thing to do or mm. irreverent thing to do. That's interesting. I like this this line, the zigzag wantonness, because, <laughs> you know, I, I know that Yeats gets ever more kind of bawdy and irreverent and kind of a bit strange. Hmm. His later poetry often goes into this fairly absurd and curious and strange place where it becomes like nursery rhymes, but like slightly demented nursery rhymes. Absolutely. It feels like wanton zigzagging. Yeah, it goes between like the depths of, of aging and death and also the, the absurdity of life and ridiculousness. And mm. there's there's something, I love that line of zigzag wantonness. I mean, he does that right here in this poem itself. He zigzags mm. between these things quite wantonly. But he also gets very bawdy. Mm. And this poem within the larger collection feels a bit like a zig to the zag. Zig to the zag to the ziggity zaggity. <laughs> I think... Overall, I can appreciate just how crafted his poetry is and how how form and content are one. And really, that is the stuff of poetry. Mm. Why write a poem if it could just be written in prose? We spoke to Lauren Arrington, Professor of English and Head of Department at Maynooth University, Ireland. She has published extensively on Yates and is co-director of the Yates International Summer School, an exciting annual event in Sligo that's dedicated to Yates and his work. 
It's full of lectures, readings, and cultural events, is open to the general public as well as to academics, and has been running for over six decades. You can find out more at www.yatessociety.com. Let's start with our really broad kind of first question. Why did you decide to study Yates? I actually came to Yates from a more contemporary angle. So I was living in Dublin doing my master's degree in 2004, 2005. And 2004 was the centenary of the Abbey Theatre. So as part of my course, I was studying Irish drama, and I was reflecting on the aesthetics of the Abbey in its centenary year and how that matched up with or didn't match up with the idea of the theatre at its founding. Um, And so I really came to Yates as a director of the theatre, as a political manoeuvrer in the way that he... um, was able to secure government as well as popular support for the theatre. And so I decided to explore the early Abbey more deeply in my doctoral thesis at Oxford, where I looked at that relationship between state subsidy of the theatre and the idea of a free theatre, which Yates articulates so much in his um, writing about the theatre in its early years. That's fascinating. Yeah, and it's so... interesting for us to have someone on who's attended to his plays and his drama, uh, his works in drama, in addition to his poetics. And so that brings a whole new angle, I think, on the question of, you know, what is the most important thing for listeners to know about the relationship between politics and aesthetics in his writings? Yeah, I think one of the most important things to know about Yeats is that he is very rarely earnest in his writing about politics. Hmm. So he is an expert um, deployer, we might say, of persona, especially when he's being at his most politically extreme. And we see that particularly in his middle to late and his late years and his poems. But you have to keep in mind that he used persona really adeptly in his early poetry, particularly in his ballads, which he often puts in the mouths of folk singers or local people in Sligo. We see that all the way back in Responsibilities and earlier. So when he's using persona this way in his late poetry, in some ways it's kind of a natural um, progression for him. Um, He also, though, I think is important to say, isn't very earnest in his political track you might say. Um, So his prefaces, for example, that he writes for editions of his poems and plays that come out with Kuala Press that were intended for a really small audience where you think Yates might be uh, more transparent because he's writing for his coterie. In fact, he often uses persona there too. So one of the most best-known examples of that is his pamphlet on the boiler where he takes the persona of an old man standing on top of a boiler in Sligo Harbour, like declaiming um, politics to the world. And that's the tract that, or pamphlet, that prefaces his play Purgatory, which of course has eugenical themes um, threaded through it. Um, so you know, people often pick and choose kind of the Yates that they would like to read, you know, Yeats the Nationalist, 
Yates, the supernaturalist. <laughs> um, but Yeats is, Yeats is all of those things kind of simultaneously, and he's able to have wear all of those masks in a way, as he would think of it, um, because he uses the uses persona um, so consistently in a way throughout his work. That's kind of it's making me think about the 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 play that's in the 1917 version of The Wild Swans Are Cool, but then that is taken out of the Macmillan version, which is published in 1919. That's interesting to think of it in terms of the different audiences for whom he was writing. But then I guess to pivot slightly away from, from the drama, one of the things that, that really interested me in, in reading this collection is that both versions, the 1917 and the 1919 version, are published at these these moments of kind of political and historical rupture or intensity, both nationally and and globally. But it's not always clear how that context relates to the collections themselves. Can you speak more about that? Sure. I think it's really helpful when you're thinking about the politics of of this volume to think really closely about the title. Um, Yeats added the word wild to the title of the poem, The Wild Swans at Cool, quite late um, in his compilation of the volume. It was just the swans at cool. Um, but that word wild brings a, an important political dimension to the book. So if we step back for a minute and think, and I've, um, I've talked about this with colleagues for you know, 15 years that I've been teaching Yates, why it's the wild swans at cool, because all swans are wild. Right. There aren't domesticated swans. So Yeats, who is such a master of economy, why is it important for him that we have that word wild in the title? Well, when you think about it, it evokes the wild geese. Right? So initially, the wild geese referred to Irish men who were fighting in, in the Jacobite army um, after the Williamite War. And it became more broadly um, used to describe Irish men who were fighting in the Continental Army. Um, so that turns our attention away from Ireland to Irishmen in Europe. If you think about that in terms of a volume that is written and published in the context of the First World War, suddenly a kind of different kind of politics start to creep in. In the expanded version of The Wild Swans at Cool, we have, of course, the Robert Gregory poems. So in memory of Major Robert Gregory and an Irish airman for Caesar's death. And we also have On Being Asked for a War Poem, where he says he's not going to write a war poem. Instead of writing a war poem, he ends up compiling an entire volume that is, in a way, a comment on Ireland and the Great War. Although it's not a consistent volume in many ways. Um, that, that theme of the First World War is threaded through largely because of the title. Wow, that's fascinating. I had no idea. But you're so right. The, the economy of Yeats is, is really important to bear in mind there. Wow. It was really important for Yeats, of course, to maintain his own kind of position in Ireland that he, wasn't, that he couldn't write explicitly about Ireland in the First World War. Gregory, Lady Gregory, didn't want him to write or to publish those Robert Gregory poems. She wanted to keep those quiet, partly because uh, his death was so personal and traumatic, but also because 
it's politically controversial, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly after 1916, yeah. uh, for um, Irish Irishmen to have participated, and so yeah, it's very clever in the way that he um, he comments without commenting, and we see him do that quite a lot. Um, you know, we see it later in his Easter 1916 poem, which he withholds for four years after the rising before publishing. Yeah. So with all of the variability across his corpus uh, of his concerns and his interests and allegiances, maybe even, and some of the variability that you bring from your own perspective and your background research, would you pick Wild Swans at Cool as one of the books of the century or as representative um, in some way as a standout piece from Yeats's works? No, um, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. I would pick some of the poems. Hmm. Um, the Wild Swans at Cool is one of my favorite um, poems of Yeats. And I find lines of it running through my head, particularly at this time of year when we see the trees and their autumn beauty. Um, and miraculously today, the woodland paths were dry in Ireland, although they so often aren't. Um, it's a poem that I love. But the... Um, the volume itself is not one that I think coheres as beautifully as, say, Michael Robartes and the Dancer, where we have that beautiful sequence of ballads that are explicitly, in a way, about Ireland, although the political tone of them is, to a large degree, um, ambiguous. The volume itself carries a great deal of weight because it's of its economy, you know, it's compressed compared to um, the 1917 Wild Swans at Cool, um, and especially compared to The Winding Stair, which absorbs, for example, words for music, perhaps, which I, I think The Winding Stair would kind of, and The Tower would vie for a second place in my, in my uh, estimation. But without a doubt, Michael Robartes and the Dancer, I think, is the volume I would choose. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. We so appreciate you having taken the time to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So the New York Public Library named The Wild Swans at Cool, the 1917 edition, as one of their books of the 20th century. What do you think, Alicia? Does this collection belong on a list of the greatest books of the 20th century? I think that Yeats definitely belongs on that list. And then the question for me is, which collection? That said, I am somewhat partial to the way that I first read Yeats, which was, as I mentioned before, in compendiums where his collections are put side by side or excerpts from them. And the benefit there is I get to pick and choose between them and put together the greatest hits, the greatest hits that I am fairly fond of by this point. On the other hand, through this reading experience, I have, well, and through what you said about Yeats being a curator of his own collections. I have become convinced of the value of reading those poems within 
the larger context as a part of a collection as a whole and seeing that as its own poetry as well. There are later works that really stand out to me. And some of the works I love are in Michael Robartes and The Dancer. And I also like some of his earlier works in The Rose. So this late middle period, as I'll call it, is a little less exciting to me, maybe because it's maturing, but it's it feels almost transitional before the poems that are uh-huh. a little more directly political and after the poems that are drawing more ornately on Irish mythology. So I'm not sure I would pick it for myself. And if I'm making a suggestion to first-time readers of Yeats, I think I would suggest Michael Robartes and the Dancer. But I definitely suggest reading Yeats. I agree. I wouldn't pick this collection either. So we're on the same page there. I also haven't really read Yeats in his standalone collections before. I've come to him also through his collected works or through single poems at school and university and in other anthologies. So this was a different experience for me as well. And I also appreciated it. And I really appreciated talking about the poems with you because I think that helped me to grapple with them and really appreciate what's going on in in the poems, how he put them together. If I were to pick a different collection, maybe I would pick Michael Robartes and The Dancer because it's got some of these big hitting, you know, Second Coming, Easter 1916, for example, or maybe The Tower or The Winding Stair. I like some of the poems that he wrote when he was older. And there's a whole bunch that he wrote like in Last Poems that was published posthumously, like The Circus Animal's Desertion, I think, that have really stayed with me over the years where he talks about the rag and bone shop of the heart. And he gets down and kind of dirty and he writes these crazy Jane poems and they're kind of bawdy and strange and I don't quite get them. I don't understand them and I feel like I need to come back to them in a few decades time and see if they resonate for me then. But I I think that that would be my answer that I would also choose a different collection and I would suggest that people go and read Michael Robartes and the Dancer or the Tower But I think the thing to note here is that I think Yeats, because of his towering (laughs) status in 20th century literature and poetry specifically, and his mastery of the craft of poetry, deserves to be read and considered among the great works of the 20th century, and that he rewards close reading and attention to the details, because no word is incidental in his work. So the swans have flown away. But they will return. And so will we in two weeks' time. (laughs) (laughs) We'd like to thank Bernard O'Donoghue and Lauren Arrington for talking to us for this episode. And the music that you heard in this podcast was a selection of traditional and contemporary tunes that were performed on Penny Whistle and written or arranged by Professor Ian Benson, who's based in Sydney, Australia. A special thank you to you, Ian. That was really fantastic. 
On the next episode, in two weeks' time, we'll be reading Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. Yay! I love Woolf and I'm excited for this one. Me too. Hopefully you guys are as well. And if you'd like to read along, please join us. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or on this episode. You can read more about the podcast, including the sources we refer to, on literatepodcast.com. Or find us on Twitter, at literatepodcast. Or email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, please consider rating it, writing a review, and telling your friends about it. It really makes a difference and helps people find us. Yes, as always, please also support your local library. And independent bookshop. Mm -hmm.